in the movie Cast Away, this is back in 2000. Anyone seen the movie Cast Away? Some people. Um, it's a movie with Tom Hanks, who plays the character Chuck Noland, uh, who's a busy uh, operations executive uh, for FedEx. He finds himself washed up on a deserted island after a cargo flight crashes in the Pacific Ocean. And as he begins to realize he's truly alone on this island, the fight for survival begins. Uh, and the story, the movie, isn't just about physical survival, but his emotional survival as well. And in the midst of all this, we see Chuck turn to a volleyball for emotional connection called Wilson. And he paints a face on it. This movie speaks of the deep reality of humanity that we are created for relationship. And the Bible, right from the beginning, its opening pages, reveals to us that each and every person is made in the image of God. And this God, we believe, is Trinity. That is three in one. Three persons existing in relationship within one divine nature. And so we read, God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And to reflect this relational nature, God created male and female. Two equals, but differing persons to reflect His relational nature. And I wonder if that makes you uncomfortable. Because the reality is our world finds that uncomfortable, if not totally offensive. Our world seeks to redefine gender, sexuality, and even marriage, and even how that plays out in the workplace. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm all for equality. But I want my sense of diversity and equality to be defined, to be defined by the unchanging gospel and the un- eternal foundations of God's word, not by ever-changing social opinion. It will pass with time. At the same time, there's things that we as the church, the global church, need to learn from the conversations that are happening in our world. Because historically, we haven't done a great job at diversity and equality. And my prayer is that as a church, as a family, as a home, as a place where we come together, that our relationships would be defined and shaped by Christ, grounded and modeled on His sacrificial love. And where our world, our family, friends and community will experience and see the sacrificial love of Christ flowing in all that we are, say and do. And so we pick up Paul's thoughts here in Colossians after he has encouraged the Colossians to seek the things above because they have been raised with Christ. He calls them to put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature and put on the new self that is in Christ. And he illustrates what this looks like. His examples are all relational. Get rid of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and not lying to each other. Talked about this last week. Instead, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, and forgiving one another. 
These virtues are all related to people. It's all about relationship. But they're not easy, are they? Especially in the world that we live in. And we've just read these words. And words like submit, obey, and slaves might cause us to think twice. Not particularly politically correct. But if Christ is Lord and we seek to things above, as we set our heart and our minds on things above, we see the example of our Lord and Master who is in heaven, who died on the cross to reconcile us and the world to Himself by His blood. And so following the example of Christ, Paul applies this to three different relationships. A wife and husband, a child and father, and a slave and master. So let's see how Paul sees the gospel shaping these relationships in marriage, parenting, and the workplace. Let's pick up in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Anyone feeling uncomfortable? I am. <laughs> this is not particularly politically correct in the 21st century. Not the sort of thing that you go out and tell people. They won't like you. But it wasn't politically correct in the 1st century either. When Paul wrote these words, it was not politically correct. See, the gospel radically transformed relationship right from the beginning. Because in Paul's day, women didn't have any sort of dignity or identity. They were property to be owned by the family and by a husband. And Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's not talking about gender equality here. Don't hear him wrong. He's not talking to the 21st century problem of gender equality. No, he says male and female in the sight of God are all equal. And you are one in Christ Jesus. And you know what? It's not just Paul. It goes right down to Genesis, right back to the beginning in Genesis, where man is alone. He is alone in the garden, and this is what God says. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now you might read that word helper and go, well, that's pretty poor. But we need to understand what this word is. Because you see, throughout the Old Testament, God is described as a helper to his people Israel. God is a helper. We see this, for example, in Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. It's that same word in the Hebrew. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. And in other cases, a helper talks about military or political assistance. This kind of helper is not weak or inferior. They are able and strong. God intended men and women to be a suitable match, a complement to each other. The woman is not a weak helper. She's the two I see. 
She's the second in command of an army. There's no weakness or inferiority here. Male and female are equal in the image of God, but different. One in Christ, but complementary in heart, mind, and body. They're like pieces of a puzzle that fit together to complete a bigger picture. A husband and a wife complement each other to fulfill the bigger picture that is the image of God. And so let's read Paul's words again. Wives, as equal partners in Christ, submit yourselves to your complementary partner in Christ, your husband, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, as equal partners in Christ, love your complementary partner in Christ, your wife, and do not be harsh with them. The gospel calls wives and husbands into a partnership to reflect the image of God. Jesus, who is equal with the Father, submits to Him by going to the cross. And as an equal, a Christian wife submits herself to her husband. Not because he bears any authority, but because she submits to the Lord. A husband loves his wife, treating her as an equal partner in Christ. Not harsh with her, like those who abuse their power and authority. In Ephesians, Paul uses a picture for the husband where his love is to be modeled after the sacrificial love of Christ that sends him to the cross. That's the kind of love a husband is meant to show. And so the priority here is one of love, not power, not authority. And there's no room for abuse or power plays or passivity even in a relationship. Any abuse of power and authority flies in the face of the gospel and God's design for human relationship. The relationship between a husband and a wife is a partnership, not power. And so when the Bible talks about the headship or the priority, priority of the husband, what does it mean? What does it mean for a husband to lead his wife and his family? Well, I found a quote that I think articulates this well. It's from Tim Challies. It took me longer still to understand that a husband's leadership is not first a matter of breaking ties or solving problems, but a matter of being first to love, the first to serve, the first to repent, the first to forgive. The call to lead is the call to display Christ-like humility and Christ-like love. While I have too often failed at this, it is at least has at least become my aim. And I can echo that sentiment. The leadership of a Christian husband is to be clothed with Christ. To be clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. The first to bear with his wife and forgive her. The first to love. The first to be selfless. The first to serve. The first to sacrifice. And in that leadership, the wife is then invited to submit herself to a servant-hearted husband who will love her as Christ loves the church, denying himself and taking up his cross. And so we see this cycle that begins where a wife submits to this kind of servant leadership. The husband responds in servant-hearted love, submission, love, submission, love. And all the more is the peace of Christ rules. And the message of Christ dwells among their relationship. 
Since 1990, the divorce rates for people over 50 have doubled. And researchers have coined this grey divorce. And they predict that it will triple by 2030. Why? Why is it that people divorce later, more later in life? Well, this research article suggests that part of it goes back to the 1960s and 70s where this pursuit of personal happiness and self-fulfillment began. And so because they're no longer personally happy and self-fulfilled, people are divorcing when they become empty nesters and kids have left the home. Our world wants to promote greater equality in relationships, but here's the thing, unless we put to death what belongs to our earthly nature, unless we put to death this pursuit of personal happiness and self-fulfillment, it will fail. We will fail. Because the Gospel calls us to an alternate option, the way of the cross. It's the humble pursuit of happiness and joy of the other, not the self. It is self-sacrifice over self-fulfillment. And it is radically different to what the world suggests. Paul then turns his attention to children and fathers. And by extension, I think this applies to parenting, but there is something special to be said to fathers. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. I think most parents would like to just read the first part and they'd be like, yep, children, obey your parents and we're done. It pleases the Lord. But Paul doesn't stop there. He turns to fathers. And he paints a two-way street. A relationship between a parent and a child is not a one-way street. And in Paul's day, and even in particular cultures today, a parent holds all the cards. They demand absolute authority and obedience. And yet, like the Christian marriage, there's no room for that. There's no room for abuse or of power and authority. Now, a child is not equal as a wife is equal to her husband. But they have dignity. At the same time, Paul is not talking about casting off parental responsibilities to just be friends with your kids. There's nothing wrong with that. But Paul expects that children will obey their parents, which means parents have some level of authority and exercise of that authority. So the issue here isn't authority, it's how they use it. Now here we come to a point of conflict. Uh, At least it's a question I get asked a lot. How old is a child and when do they stop being a child? See, in Australia, a person legally enters adulthood at 18 years old. In places like Japan, it's 20 years old. It's dropping to 18 in a few years. In Jewish traditions, a child enters adulthood at 13. Legally, it's 18 in Israel. And in some cultures, it's not age, but social markers. If you remain unmarried, you're still considered a child to some degree. But I think in Paul's case, he's talking about age. So Paul calls these children below the age, legal age, to obey their parents. Christian children who know and love the Lord to obey their parents. And obey them in everything. The motivation is not to please their parents, though. 
not to meet their parents' expectation, but to please the Lord. And so as they submit their lives to Jesus, they live for Him by obeying their parents. And this is one of those dramatic changes that you see in children who come to take hold of the gospel. Now you might start asking, what if your parents aren't Christians? What if they ask you to do something unreasonable or something that conflicts with your faith? Now that's a bigger question than what Paul is addressing here, but let me just offer a few thoughts. I want to start with the sixth commandment. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In Leviticus, God causes people to respect their parents. We're encouraged in Proverbs to listen to our father's instruction and not forsake our mother's teaching. It's Proverbs 1.8. What's interesting is that the very verse before that, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom comes through our parents. For the Christian who seeks to fear the Lord, they are encouraged to honour and respect their parents. Now, in most cases, that is seen through obedience. But there is a slight difference. It's easy to confuse obedience with honour and respect. But you can easily obey someone with having no respect and no honour. Vice versa, you can show full honour and respect without necessarily obeying them either. So rather than writing off parents as old and disconnected from the world, we are able to receive instruction and teaching and wisdom with honour and respect. Now you may not agree with them, but there is no place for treating them as senile or useless. Remember what Paul said, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And Paul's not just talking about our relationships in the body of Christ, in the church. He's talking about our families as well. As we deal with parents, we should be clothed with these virtues bound in love for God. But the reverse is also true. This applies to parents. Paul speaks particularly to fathers that they are called to inspire and to encourage their children. Now I'll be the first to admit that I'm not always so good at that. And if I can be so bold, negative reinforcement and reverse psychology in certain cultures is a conflict with what Paul says here. Teaching a child not to be a sore loser by beating them decisively at a game is not a good example of what Paul is talking about here. Not that that happened at all uh, in recent days. Um, <laughs> rather than inspiring or encouraging, it embitters, it irritates, it provokes a child to respond inappropriately. Rather than building in them godly virtues, that the Christian parent should be developing. And the result, Paul tells us, is discouragement and despair. And so again, here, there is no place for the abuse of power or authority. 
There's no place for subtle means of coercion and manipulation. Let me give you one simple example. Rewards and sticker charts for kids. Now that you can use them, but be careful that they don't become means of coercion and manipulation. You have to be careful in the Christian family because there is no place for that. I want to step back a little bit as we look at the parent-child relationship and why that's important. Because the first thing is that God reveals and relates to us as a heavenly father. When Jesus teaches about forgiveness on the Sermon on the Mount, he calls people to forgive. Why? Not because there is this wrathful, overbearing God that is watching over you. No, because your heavenly father forgives you. When you pray, Father, our Father in heaven, And so, as Christian parents, especially fathers, our children learn to relate to God as their Heavenly Father as they learn to relate to us. A child who grows up in fear of his earthly father will learn to fear his Heavenly Father, but may struggle to accept the amazing grace that is offered through the cross of Christ. Likewise, a child that grows up in a home that is affectionate, between father, parent and child, may find it easier to relate to the Heavenly Father on an emotional level. But then they might find it hard to reconcile the holiness and the wrath of God if they never experience earthly discipline. So there's this holding together of who God is as parents. Because what we do as parents communicates to our children the Gospel. And it's the gospel that we ourselves believe. But it goes a step further. Because the church is modeled on the family. And so the leaders of the church will influence or lead the church in much the same way that they parent their children. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy that the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? But again, this is shaped by the gospel, not by culture or the world. Disobedience is an obedience to God. And so the way a man manages and leads his family is an indication of how he will lead and serve in the church. Now it doesn't mean that they're they need to get it perfect, that they need to get it right, but it serves as a reflection, as an indication of what kind of leader they will be. Can the holiness of God and the righteousness of God be held together with the grace and the love of God? And so parents, and particularly fathers, what you do at home with your family is essential to how you communicate the gospel to your children. As you guide them, in Christ. Now there's no guarantees there. There's no guarantees that your children will come to faith because of what you do. That is grace. But it does make a world of difference. What you do to reflect your heavenly Father communicates a whole lot to your children about the gospel.
Lastly, Paul turns his attention to a relationship that seems foreign to us. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes uh, when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Surely that's not relevant. Why are we talking about this? Well, I hope on one level this is irrelevant to you. Because if you're in that sort of relationship, we need to have a serious talk and potentially call the police. But I wonder if you may feel like a slave in the workplace. And I think at some level, Paul, Paul's words here do give us wisdom for the workplace. And he does three things. He challenges the heart. He gives us perspective and he reminds us of the spiritual reality influences our earthly one. So let me kind of run through these quickly. Firstly, integrity. The employee should act with integrity. That is, they don't act or look productive when they're under observation. They do their work regardless of their surroundings. It means that they don't waste company time when there's work to be done means they're not entertaining distractions or procrastinating where dead not deadlines loom. The Christian works with integrity in the workplace. They don't just work when the eye is on you or to earn favor. They do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And so the Christian employee works with integrity. Second perspective. The Christian understands that their work isn't separate from their faith. It's an extension of it. Paul calls the Colossians to seek the things above, to set their hearts and minds on things above. And it's not disconnected from this earthly life. But he repeats the sentiments of earlier verses. Verse 17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And so, Paul calls the Christian employee to remember that their work is not just work for human businesses and organizations, but for the Lord. And thirdly, spiritual reality. That is, that we're reminded that the righteousness of God, that is, the one who does what is right before God and serves the Lord, receives an inheritance of God's kingdom. The unrighteous who does wrong will give an account for their actions before the throne of God. And so the justice of God plays out even in the workplace. But it's not just to the employee, it's to the employer, to the manager, to the executive. Those who have authority over others. Do what is right and fair. Why? Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so again, there is no place for abuse of authority or power. Instead, that authority, that exercise of authority is meant to be filled with the example of the Master, the Lord Jesus. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now you might think in the world of big business and corporations and working from home that Paul's words to work from the law, work for the Lord seems distant. 
You don't have accountability in the same way. Your executives, your managers are, are far off. And to work for the Lord, well, God is far off. But for the Christian to work for the Lord is more like working in a small family business where everyone from the owner to the floor staff are working together to a common goal. As you work for the Lord, you work alongside with Christ as He encourages and guides you in all that you do. He enables and equips you through His Holy Spirit to serve Him, to bring Him glory, to serve your Master in heaven. And so whether you're working from home or you're hidden away in the corner in the sprawling jungle of corporate offices or running from place to place, the Lord is there with you. And He is working with you and working in you. Firstly for Him, but also for the ones you work for. And as you work for Him, your earthly work is filled with integrity. It is influenced and it is motivated by the Gospel. And you are firstly accountable to God for everything you do here on earth. While Paul highlights specific relationships, the husband, wife, parent, child, and the master and slave or employer, employee, there are gospel principles reflected in each one of them that apply to all our relationships. Let me finish with these. Firstly, our relationships are shaped by Christ and His indwelling Word, not the world. The gospel was gospel is and always will be countercultural. It will never line up with the world. You may see some overlap, but it will never line up. It will always come into conflict at some point. And the Christian is called to put to death and get rid of whatever belongs to our earthly nature and instead put on Christ. The gospel shapes how we live, how we act and how we relate to each other. And so our relationships, all of our relationships are shaped by Christ and His Word. Second, where there is authority and power in a relationship, it's modelled on the character of God. That is, it is an abusive, coercive, domineering, manipulative, and so on. It's compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, supportive, forgiving, bound up in the love of God. And as Jesus himself says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lastly, our relationships reflect our relationship with God Himself. In every relationship, how we relate to other people reflects our understanding or misunderstanding of how we relate to Christ. The child relates to their parents the way they relate to God as their Heavenly Father. The employee relates to their employer the way they relate to God as Lord and Master. The wife relates to her husband the way that they relate to Christ. Now, I don't know how you feel after all of that, but I'll be the first to say that I haven't got this figured out, or at least got it right. And in fact, I think some of you are doing way better than I am. But let this be our prayer. 
that under God and by his grace, that he will continue to work in all of our relationships, to be defined and shaped by Christ, to be grounded and modeled on his sacrificial love for us, and that with the help of his Holy Spirit, that we might bring him glory and know him more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not only God, that you are not simply the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the Lord and master of all creation, but that you are our heavenly Father. And you invite us to call you Abba. And so, because of this unique relationship that we can have with you, through the blood shed by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that we would live to reflect you. We pray that our relationships would reflect the gospel. That they would be shaped and grounded in Christ shaped by his word. Give us wisdom as we are faced with the world and its opinion. We pray for wisdom and courage to live in faith to your word. And as we, in our various relationships, exercise authority, Father, we pray that we would do that as a reflection of who you are. Compassionate, kind, humble, gracious, patient, forgiving, and loving. Help us to do that. Help us to be clothed with Christ. But help us also to come to fully understand the depth and the richness of the relationship that we have with you. While we are in awe of you, we need not be afraid of you. That while you are holy, and you call us to be holy, you are merciful and gracious to us. And you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ who deals with our sin and death by reconciling us, by shedding his blood on the cross. And so for that we thank you. And we ask again that these things would shape and ground our relationships with one another, with our families, with our world. And we pray this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we ask. Amen.